I'd like to welcome you all to the launch event of the ninth Festival of Ideas. And in particular, I'd like to thank St John's College for hosting the event, and also um, to Rand Europe, who have helped organise the event and who have also played an integral part in the research that you're going to hear about tonight. Um, the Festival of Ideas is one way that the university seeks to bring people together to discuss and share views on some of the key areas of research that are affecting society today. And I can think of no better example than the topic that you're about to hear tonight. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Dr. Alex Sutherland and um, you're going to listen and hear about his work and research um, on body cameras. And just one final thing to note, that after the panel discussion, there will be a reception downstairs, and everybody is invited to that. And you'll also get the opportunity uh, to ask questions. So do enjoy, do enjoy the evening and the reception as well. Thank you. Hello. Evening. Thank you very much for coming along. Um, thank you for uh, coming to pay attention to us. Um, I should think we'd need to add about fire exits. I don't know where the fire exits are. Do you know where they are? <laughs> okay. There's a sign up there, it's fire exit. So there's a fire, that's the exit. Okay. So we're going to talk to you about um, body-worn cameras. So a quick show of hands. Who's heard of body-worn cameras? Okay. Preaching to the choir. Um, <laughs> So I'll give you a brief kind of overview of what we're going to talk about and who we are. So I'm Alex Sutherland. I'm a researcher at RAND Europe, which is a not-for-profit research institution based at the soon-to-be-gentrified Mitcham's Corner. Um, <laughs> Barack Ariel is lecturer in experimental criminology um, at the Institute of Criminology at Cambridge. Um, he'll be taking you through the evidence relating to body-worn cameras in different areas. We did have two discussants lined up, but unfortunately, Karina O'Reilly can't make it because she's ill, so she sends her apologies. But Julian Huppert, who you may know, I uh, hope you do, he's just here, um, former MP for Cambridge, um, uh, he'll be, uh, I'm sure you can fill the slot, I'm sure you can fill the time. <laughs> um, and a bit about Julian, um, uh, he's currently working as a university lecturer um, looking at evidence driven public policy, but as an MP, he served on the Home Affairs Select Committee. This is right, isn't it, Julian? Yes. <laughs> we looked at um, uh, body cameras as part of, a part of that piece of work, which is, which is great. We're very, very glad that Julian could make it, very grateful he could make it. And you'll see the final part of this is the audience. That's you. And we're expecting, hoping, that you have lots of questions to ask. Um, if you haven't, I have some backup slides. But I hope that we can be stimulating enough that you, um, you actually want to ask some questions of your own. So uh, without any further ado, we'll crack on. Um, the first thing to say really is we're, we're, it's a collaborative piece of work between the University of Cambridge. The study is led by Barack Ariel um, and it's a collaboration between ourselves and various police forces. So we're very grateful to the police who've made this piece of work happen um, and, yeah, and their continued support with this, uh, with this really interesting piece of work. So before we talk about anything else, I'm just going to show you a brief video which uh, some of you may have seen, some of you may not have seen. Okay. Okay. Look at the right hand side, focusing on that officer for a minute. So the officers are chasing a suspect who's just driven away in his car. Officer Kidd has just turned his camera on, he's just woken up.
and they're now chasing the, the car that's crashed into a lamppost further down the street. You can see the, the player where the officers are, and they're all approaching the car. Okay, how, hands up if you saw a gun. Oh, come Okay, all right. He's <laughs> paying attention. Um, who heard the gunshot? No? There was a gunshot. Only one, I think, right at the very beginning. So this is a, a stop by University of Cincinnati Police on Samuel Dubose. Um, it was a routine traffic stop, and in the space of a matter of seconds, literally three or four seconds, um, he was shot and then eventually died following the encounter with the police. Now, this illustrates um, both the speed at which things are happening with police officers having to make decisions very quickly, but also gives an indication of the kinds of interactions that body cameras might help um, influence. And if you think it's just, a, it's just a US thing, these things only happen in the US, and this isn't really relevant to me, well, this is Twitter today. Um, body cameras are being rolled out across London, uh, starting in different boroughs. I think Lewisham is one of the first boroughs. There are going to be 20,000 frontline officers with police cameras, um, I think within a year or so. Um, and there are already police officers having these cameras all over the place, all over the country. So it's a very kind of current thing that will affect you whether you know it or not. So although you've all heard of cameras, you may not know that much about the technology, maybe you do. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about them uh, as an overview. So the, it's, the broad term is wearable technology, wearable tech, and they can be um, mounted, mounted on glasses, helmets, shoulders. They're normally mounted on kind of the middle of the chest somewhere. The cameras themselves can be front-facing screens, so they can actually show you what's being recorded, and the cameras record in kind of 1080 or 720 HD audio and visual, so you get both, the, as you've seen, the sound as well. Um, the question about whether cameras are actually needed um, is almost redundant. The fact that the rollouts are already happening, it's, it's really about you know, how, do you, how do you best deploy them. But it's worth revisiting the question about why they're actually needed and are they, are they needed. So you might recognize that still the top left is uh, Eric Garner, a man who unfortunately died following an interaction with um, NYPD. And this was filmed. And I've, I've shown these two incidents because the contrast is one was filmed and one wasn't. Now, Eric Garner died, oh, and the people, bystanders who were filming the event at the time, the officers can be seen in the film looking at the camera, directly at the camera, and not really paying attention to it. Mike Brown was shot, there was no camera. Um, what happened after Mike Brown was shot, there were, lots of, there were riots and social unrest um, in Ferguson. It gave rise to kind of this, the Black Lives Matter movement, but the context of all this was about a need for greater police accountability. And in the middle of all this, cameras started to be rolled out, and there was a huge amount of interest. And on one hand, saying, well, everyone, every cop should wear a camera. People were saying, well, hang on a minute, the Eric Garner case, the police were filmed and nothing happened. Well, they, didn't, they didn't change their behavior, so you know, what, what difference is it going to make? So it led to these kinds of questions, but the overarching context was the question about a need for greater police accountability. And it was thought that cameras, from the, from the point of view from the citizens or suspects, cameras might help with that. But we mustn't forget the police perspective on this as well. Police are in the front line, and they see people often at their very worst. So there's a few examples. So the top left is a recruiting poster. I remember from school many, many years ago. I'm not sure how effective it was. It wasn't particularly effective for me. But you know, the top right-hand side, you can see maybe atypical, but it's you know, a Saturday night in some town in the UK, probably a Friday, Saturday night in some town. The bottom left is the poll tax riots in the 1990s. And, and bottom right is an officer trying to effect an arrest in Scotland and being assaulted in the process of that. So the thing to remember as well is that the, the police are also in, in the front line and then anything we can do, any tools they can be given to help them do their job better and safer, and particularly if it helps improve public safety, I think should be welcomed. 
The, question, the broader question is about what do we know about police and public encounter interactions. There's some data from different jurisdictions. I'll just give you some examples of, of data that we think we do know about police-public encounters. So um, in the United States in 2002, it's quite old data, but just as an example, about 26,000 complaints about excessive police force um, were, were, were lodged, and about 2,000 of those were upheld. In the UK, just last year, there were 37,000 complaints encountering about 70,000 allegations, so encompassing about 70,000 allegations. And when you look at the breakdown of the allegations themselves, about 14% of them were for things like incivility, impoliteness, and intolerance, and a further kind of 2% uh, were, well, 1,600 or so were for what, what was referred to as overtly discriminatory behaviour. So about 11,000 allegations relating to the interaction between the police and the person they're talking to. Now, what we, this is one area we think that cameras could have a big impact because it's about the, the conduct, the quality of the interaction between the person and the police officer. Looking at use of force, and we talk about these three outcomes because that's the three we look at in the study. So um, there is no systematic data collection on police use of force in the US or the UK. I'll say that again. There's no systematic data collection on police use of force in the US or the UK, which is quite strange, given that this is kind of the, the police are the kind of the, the arm of the state that is allowed to use force against the public. Um, in the US, um, use of force is described as, or has been described in the past, as a, a low-frequency event, about 3.6 incidents per 10,000 police-public encounters. Doesn't sound like much. You can contrast this with Brazil. Um, where roughly 8,000 people were killed by police in the state of Rio alone in about a 10-year period. What this illustrates, one is that there's a, a kind of a range of force when we're talking about use of force. It can be obviously killing all the way down, back down to, to kind of, um, during arrest, kind of making people uh, comply with being arrested. It also illustrates that there's a huge amount of variation across the globe in police public encounters and, and the impact that the cameras, if they're going to be used, might have. And I'll finish up talking about assaults against officers. So there is some long-term data in jurisdi some jurisdictions, but there's some limitations of this. But just to highlight, in the US, um, there's about 1,000 assaults per 10,000 officers in 2014-15. In the UK, the best data you have on this is um, the, the actual offence of assault against the police, a PC. And there are about 23,000 of those um, in the same year. So why am I telling you, why am I bombarding you with these statistics? Why does it matter? Well, the thing to remember is that each of these has a social and financial cost. And we think taken together, it means that the evidence, uh, evidence suggests that actually a bit more can be done to improve the quality of police and public encounters. And cameras are just one tool that can help achieve this. And it is important to remember that cameras are not a silver bullet. They cannot do everything. Okay, so how are, cam how are police cameras supposed to work? Um, well, we know from different disciplines that um, animals and, and people alter their behaviour if they're aware they're being observed. The, the idea of this is that it leads to greater self-awareness, um, self-inspection, self-scrutiny, and people are more likely to comply with rules of conduct. Being caught doing something which violates a rule, you know, a behavioural rule, is something that most rational people try to avoid most of the time. And the other important thing to remember is that just as people, you know, people differ in their sensitivity to deterrence or surveillance, police officers will also not react all in the same way if they're being monitored. So what do we know about cameras that are already in use? Um, some of you may remember this case. So this is the, the lady um, stroking the cat. There's a camera filming her. She doesn't know the camera is there. Um, 
This is the lady putting the very surprised looking cat in the bin. Um, following the incident, there was a huge media outcry, it was in 2010, I think, and, um, and she couldn't give an explanation as to why she did it, she just thought it would be funny, quote unquote. Um, my money is on the fact that if she had known there was a camera watching her, she would not have done this. I'm hoping that's the case anyway. Um, but this raises an important question, well, you know, cameras are everywhere already. Why aren't we all just doing this, we're told, because the cameras are watching us? Well, we, you know, why would more cameras make a difference? Well, not all cameras are the same. I'm just going to talk you through some of the evidence we have on what we know about other kinds of cameras. So CCTV, like we have up there, in case you haven't seen it, uh, and probably in the entrance hall and elsewhere, um, has only a modest impact on crime. So evidence um, shows that it actually works best on particular kinds of crime, so vehicle crime in car parks, i.e. when offenders are very aware of what their surroundings and trying to avoid detection. So they're thinking very hard about their surroundings. Traffic cameras, those ones that everyone loves to ignore, I didn't, didn't say that, um, um, it can have an impact on, uh, on, on, on serious and fatal accidents. Um, as an example of a camera that's in use every day, all day, all over the world in many places, um, they have no evidence on this, police dashboard cameras. Um, they're rolled out, they're ubiquitous, they're, they fund whole police shows on TV shows on, how, on, on the evidence from them, um, but there's no evidence about what they're actually supposed to do, but they are everywhere. So. What about police cameras? What are they supposed to do? Well, there's a big long list. I'm not going to read them all off there. Um, there's two examples. They're supposed to reduce police use of stop and search and reduce arrests. Um, you look at all these things, you know, there's a lot of things there, you know, all that from one little video recorder. The thing to remember is that there are tens of thousands of cameras now, and again, in London alone, there will be tens of thousands quite soon, um, being used globally in different contexts. And the thing we should keep in mind, the one thing to keep in mind when you look at the evidence, which Brack will talk about in a minute, is that the camera is attached to a person, a police officer, and it's what the person does that matters, and that's really the focus of this research. So I'll hand over now to Brack, who will talk you through the evidence of effectiveness, and I'll rejoin in a minute. Thanks. Surprise, Ken. Right. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, so I'll take you through the evidence that we've collected over the years uh, on uh, the use of body-worn videos in policing, uh, and the journey started just a few years ago in uh, Rialto, California, when we had the chief of police as a student in our program, in the police executive program, and we tried to understand whether body-worn videos would actually have an impact. Uh, we didn't start our journey by asking the questions that you've seen on, on the screen before. The question was actually about administrative um, tasks and how long officers take to record information and because officers are so busy, maybe we can reduce the amount of time officers spend writing reports and instead to record things like doctors do. But the city of Rialto didn't approve this research uh, project and instead we did something else because we already had the camera. So we said, what can we do? Well, how about looking at the effect of uh, body-worn videos on uh, use of force and complaints, which is a big uh, deal everywhere, especially in the United States, because some cities can go bankrupt just because of all these litigation costs. So that was a big thing for them. Now, it's very important to remember that it's not just about the camera. Alex was very specific and he was right that, in fact, it's not the device. The device is actually pretty dumb. It's how you use it. And one thing you will see in the presentation just now in terms of the evidence is that it's not just about having a camera recording. It's about how to use it and to create some sort of a new dynamic between the police officer and member of the public. And that, we believe, can be reached by a simple notification letting people know that they're being video recorded, videotaped. 
And not only that it affects the suspect or the victim or the offender, however you want to look at that, it also affects the police officer who is now having some sort of a nudge to himself or herself, hey, this thing is being, video is being recorded. I better check myself and make sure that I behave the way I'm supposed to behave according to the guidelines. Now bear in mind, this research is not about new training. We didn't do anything different with the police officers other than giving them the cameras and asking them to, asking them to participate in the study. So it's not about creating policing from a, from, from a new approach. It's seeing what happens when an officer is wearing the camera that will potentially calm down the situation, the officer as well as the suspect. So it works on both ways. I'm sure somebody's going to ask us in 20 minutes or more, um, who, who does the camera have an impact on? Is it the officer or is it the suspect? We don't really know because we're not there. We just have the evidence following the experiments. But it seems to have an impact on both parties. So again, the study, the, 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 the project rather, started in Rialto, California, which is a relatively small place with a mid-sized police department with about uh, 100 officers altogether, but 54 frontline officers. And for an entire year, we assigned these cameras to these officers to wear them and to see what impact that might have on this particular department. From a research methods perspective, it was, a, it was a randomized controlled trial, just as you would find in clinical trials, except that, was, that one was in the field, and we randomly assigned the police shifts. So in the course of a year, you have about 988 shifts for a Rialto, so if you have three shifts per day, that's what it comes out to, and we randomly assigned them every week to wearing the cameras and not wearing the cameras. So at the end of the year, we had half of those shifts with cameras, or treatment shifts, if you will, and half of them without. And because of that random assignment, we can conclude that any difference you would find between the shifts with the cameras and the ones without is due to the treatment, which in this case is the camera plus the not notification, or the announcement that they're wearing the camera, on a wide variety of outcomes, such as use of force and complaints. And the bottom line is this. If we look at the year before the experiment and then the year of the experiment, we found a massive reduction in complaints against the police, not about 90%. So you're not falling off your seat, so let me say it again. A 90% reduction in complaints against the police. This is massive. This is a lot of money. It's a lot of, um, a lot of work associated with this. And of course, it's the human element here that there aren't as many people who agreed or feel aggrieved at what the police have done to them. So it's a massive reduction. And these are not complaints that were looked into and we found that there's nothing to substantiate. The, the, the reduction is in, is in the number of people that go into the police department and say, I want to complain about Jim. And the other outcome that we found is a massive reduction in the use of force incidents. In other words, the reported events where police officers had to use force. And we think that this is one of the best and direct sort of evidence to a change in the way that the police officer has behaved when responding to specific, when responding to suspects. So about a 50% about reduction in the use of force in Rialto. Now, one of the questions that were raised after the study, and rightly so, is, is there a fade out effect? In other words, are, is it like the Big Brother show where people just uh, calm down after a while and they relax in front of the camera and behave naturally? You all know it's fake, right? But at the end of the day, is there, is there a fade-out effect that officers are just used to having the camera and they revert to their old ways? So that's an empirical question. So you know, the idea of evidence-based policing is to look at the evidence without making assumptions. So we looked at the records before the experiment had started in Rialto, and then at the evidence that we've already had in that, in that report for, two, for that particular year, and then we followed them up 
couple of years later. And we found that the change in, in the pattern of reporting of both use of force and complaints was exact, almost exactly the same in the years after the experiment. So the change not, not only was dramatic, it was sustained for a very long time. So that's quite encouraging because if there, if there wouldn't be a, such an effect, we're just wasting our money. We're spending it on something that just in a few years' time, officers would go back to what they did before. And then another real qu big question was asked about Rialto was, is it replicable to other places? Because if this small place such as Rialto, it's working for them, do you think it will work for other places like West Midlands Police or London or other big cities around the world? And that's a legitimate question. So what we did was to ask other students on the police executive program to take part in this global experiment, as many as we can, to see whether the effect of body-worn videos, as we found in Rialto, would be replicable or replicated in other places as well. And this is essentially what we did. So we tried to get as many forces as we could, and we got 11 tests altogether. So for those who like um, research designs or research methods, this is a multi-site uh, experiment with a lot of participating officers with thousands and thousands of shifts, and we replicated the same design as Rialto, half of the shifts with cameras and half of them without. And primarily what I'm going to talk about today is looking at the before and after, in other words, before the experiment was conducted and then while the experiment was conducted uh, during that year. And it was relatively straightforward on paper. Officers had to wear body-worn videos, they had to make that announcement, they had to let people know that they recorded the incident. They had to save and store this footage on a particular server or a cloud. It changes from place to place, but that's generally it. And keep the evidence. Now, we're going to come back later on to the retention policy, which I'm sure some people are interested in. But that was basically it. Now, I can see you're not paying attention to me anymore. You're just looking at the footage. So I'm just going to move forward. So, uh, uh, I'm going to present three uh, results for you, uh, although there's a long list of results that we can look at, like legitimacy and other things, but I'll focus on use of force, on complaints and assaults against officers, which is a big, a big driver. So we, look, we gather all the evidence, and we run a very simple Excel uh, table, and we get this. This is the big oy vey of science. You look at this, and you look at the difference between the experimental versus control groups, and you see no difference. My God, what do you do with this? I mean, you run all this, this project for a long time and you find that there's no difference between officers wearing the cameras and officers not wearing the cameras. So that's not good. It's difficult to publish a paper that's not statistically significant, as I'm sure you all know. But of course, the devil, the detail, the devil is in the details. And once we break down the participating officers based on one simple criterion, did they follow through? Were the officers in, involved did they actually do what they're supposed to do? And that's wearing the cameras and making that notification, as we said before. And once we broke down these forces, we actually found something very, if you were very logical. If the police departments told us somewhere during the trial, look, this was very cute, but we're not taking part in your experiment anymore. We're moving on. Everybody's getting the camera. Everybody's using the camera as they should. So in other words, in experimental shifts and control shifts, everybody's using the cameras. So that's what you're seeing on your right. There was no difference in terms of the use, reporting use of force per shift, which kind of makes sense because everybody got the pill. If you look at those police departments on the left, the ones that actually follow through exactly like the protocol dictated, then we find about a 37% reduction in use of force. So that worked according to the hypothesis. But the more interesting group is the one in the middle. 
the one where we find a 72% increase in the use of force in those treatments that officers were wearing cameras. So we had to look into that because that's really interesting. What we found is that these are departments where the officers didn't wear the cameras in the control shifts, which is great, but then they gave the discretion to the officer when to turn on the camera. So instead of turning on the camera when they enter a situation, when they enter a job, where they go into a house, where they talk to a suspect, the officers had the discretion, like the matter having for their project, <laughs> to see whether the officer would turn on the camera when they think would be the necessary, the right time. And what happened? Use of force went up. It kind of makes sense when you think about the theory. If you go into a situation when you then turn on the camera when it's already hot, you missed your moment. And then instead of calming down the situation, the party, the suspect, is even more aggrieved because now you tell them, hey, I'm going to take a video of you. So that people didn't like that. So they became even more offensive, and the officers responded with more force. So that's that about that. What about complaints? Complaints, that's a paper that came out just recently, and we looked at several forces that were willing to give us this, this information, and we found something quite extraordinary. We found that complaints against the police in these participating forces mimic the same finding we found in Rialto. In other words, more than 90% reduction in complaints. Now you're talking about large forces, West Midlands Police, West Yorkshire Police. These are large police forces, large police departments, and the results are the same as Rialto. In other words, something has changed in the way the police officers conduct themselves, in the way the suspects conduct themselves, once cameras are involved because this is probably one of the best examples, if you think about legitimacy, of a proxy to this legitimacy through accountability, through transparency. Both parties are in check, they're behaving in a different sort of way, and there are fewer reasons to complain against police officers. And finally, probably the most contentious finding is the effect of body-worn videos on assaults, assaults on officers, rather. In other words, officers getting assaulted in the line of duty. And here we found that indeed, the use of body-worn videos, if you look at the forces that were able to give us information, we found a whopping reduction, about 60% reduction in assaults on officers. So in the totality of it, not only that the cameras are protecting the suspect, not only that they're causing the situation to be more civilized, we also find that the officers are less likely to be assaulted once cameras are around which we think is really uh, important because we don't want our officers to be assaulted in any sort, sort of way. So what are the policy implications of this research? And you can think of several, but we just want to focus on the ones that may, you might find interesting. One of them is about the discretion, discretion of officers uh, that are wearing these body-worn videos. The research evidence suggests that police officers should not have the discretion when to turn on the camera. It's okay to have a particular policy when cameras should be used. For example, you want to exclude domestic violence cases, that's your choice. I, don't, I cannot tell you whether it's working better or not for domestic violence. But once you decided that body-worn videos is something that you want to do, that this is something that you want to provide your officers, you cannot give the officers a discretion when to turn on the camera because it backfires. And that's really important. And it also protects the officer because if you have discretion when to turn on the camera and you turn it on through discretion by means of discretion in use of force incidents, how would you know that this use of force incident is about to start? And of course, if you want to capture the evidence of the suspect's demeanor, why you had to use force, you missed, it, you missed the opportunity. So, and of course, 
at the line of duty when things are really rough. It's, you know, it's really tough being a cop out there. So when things are rough, why would we want our officer to think twice about turning on the camera when things are, moving, are, are being, uh, let's, say call, let's call them not nice? You want the officer to be safe as a policy insurance that the entire interaction is recorded from the very beginning. The last thing that is very important about the assaults against officers is about better training that we need to give the officers. What you didn't see before is that in some police departments, use of force actually went up when you look at the control versus experimental. In other words, shifts with cameras and shifts without. But the challenge is that we don't really know how officers are behaving at that particular moment. For example, it might be that having a camera is causing the officer to rethink himself or herself whether they're behaving in the way that they should. And questioning yourself whether that's the right course of action in a split-second decision might cause it to get, uh, to, get, to get assaulted. The other point, if I may, if I have time, is, a, is around the shock talk. Some police departments uh, would tell you that our officers are being judged all the time for talking trash on the job, in other words, cursing. And the camera, because I have the camera on me, I'll be reluctant to use that kind of foul language. Well, sometimes you gotta use foul language. That's part of the job. And if that's gonna get the suspect calmed down, instead of having to use force or even deadly force, so be it. It's not nice out there. And sometimes using that kind of authoritative voice calms down some suspects, and we want that from our officers. Thank you. I'll hand over to Julian Huppert um, to give his kind of responses and reaction. We have about 10 minutes or so, Julian, but okay. if it spills over and you want to kind of invite the audience for their thoughts, then you can go ahead. And then Question. after that, we'll answer Q&A. Great. Well, what I'd rather do is to, to hear some of the comments from everybody else, but it's, it's great to be here. I know it's unlikely to have a politician who's actually interested in evidence, but you know, it does happen. Uh, and something I've been working on since I lost my seat last year is how do we actually use evidence to make sensible decisions in public policy? Uh, and that covers pretty much every area where lots of decisions are made without bothering to look at what the realities uh, actually are. Um, and that's true in policing and criminal justice just as much as in anything else. Um, there are very wel welcome recent changes, the College of Policing, the What Works Institutes, but it's still a trend that's gradually growing to try to do things that are actually good. One famous example of people getting that wrong is um, a, a scheme that was started in the US and rolled out lots of places, Scared Straight. Has anybody heard of this? So this was an idea that if you take a bunch of young people who are at risk of committing crimes and you take them to a prison and you expose them to realities of prison, they'll be so scared that they will never commit another crime and they'll be fine. There's been some really interesting analysis of it and it turns out to actually increase the chance of people committing crimes to go in prison. So you might, that's been shown, I can't remember when the first study was that found that ages ago, but it's still used. Uh, there is still a series in the in US TV, where you've, eight series I think, where they're still trying this on small children. Uh, Google it, you'll see some horrific videos, like the videos you've seen here little children being shouted at in the toilets of a prison. It's, it's a fairly cheap program to run, <laughs> but it actually increases criminality. And there's lots and lots of things like that. And a lot of policing has been done based on this seems quite right. You know, the sergeant when I started said it was a good idea, so I do it now. And that can't be the way that we work things. And let me pick up on this. I mean, the police in particular have this crucial role in society. You know, we absolutely depend on police to keep us all safe. And as a result, we give them powers that we don't give anyone else. We say it is legitimate 
to use violence, to use force, under certain circumstances. We don't say to anybody else. That's quite a power. It's quite an astonishing power. And so it's really important that we get it right. As everybody knows, particularly a Spider-Man fan, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and it's really important that we do get that right for the police. And there, it is astonishing how much use of force there is, and the fact that it's not recorded. So sort of thing you'd want to know, this is an exceptional power we're giving people. How come it's not recorded? And there are problems. So we do want it used where it is appropriate. If we had a police force that would never use force at all, we would have problems. But you have to make sure that it's used correctly. So there are various options. You want to avoid the cases where police officers use force inappropriately. You want to make sure that where those complaints come in, they are dealt with seriously, where there are correct complaints. But you also want to protect police from unfair complaints. You don't want a situation where a police officer on their own could be subject to false accusations from a bunch of people they've done something inappropriate. That doesn't help us either. We know there are police officers, sadly, who do misbehave. We know there are police officers who use violence far more than they should do. In the UK, in the US, very obviously. We want those people to be caught and done and dealt with, and we don't want everyone else punished for getting for, for that problem. So I think it's really exciting. And the results that we have here, you know, fantastic results to be able to see fewer complaints. And ideally, what you might want to see is that more of the complaints that were made were substantiated. Because if what we're seeing is just the complaints where people did misbehave, that yeah, if they did misbehave, it's right to do it. I'd be interested to know what the figures are on what the success rate of complaints. That's assuming that there's a fair process for judging complaints of eight police officers. But that's another, another issue. Um, so there's some really interesting questions. And great to see use of force coming down. Although what that alarmingly suggests is that there was some inappropriate use of force beforehand. Uh, you know, otherwise, it wouldn't be constrained uh, by observation. But there are lots of other questions that do come around. The data about discretion is really interesting. There was a case a number of years ago that the IPCC looked at um, about a taser officer who used a taser, was wearing a body-worn camera, but miraculously it got turned off for the couple of minutes just before they used the taser. Uh, now, obviously, that looks a bit suspicious. You know, I want to record everything except this bit. I don't want this to be seen, and I had to do it, there's no choice. So I think it is really important there isn't that sense of discretion, and it's interesting that the figures back that up, that it's the right thing for the police um, as well as for the rest of us. But who should have these? Should it be every single police officer all the time? I mean, clearly not. So it would be odd if another police officer has to have a body-worn camera. It might break, break their work a bit. Um, I got into this initially when looking at firearms officers, which is the most extreme case of use of force. And the case is absolutely strong, but every single firearms officer or an officer with a taser should have one of these on at all times. Uh, when you look at a scene, the Dublin killing or anything like that, it would be useful to know what should an officer have been able to see. When they say, I never saw that, could they have seen it? Could they not have seen it? There's no way a jury can sensibly try to work this out sometime later. We will actually get a lot more protection from that. So there's a lot of questions there. The question about storage is a really interesting one. I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When is this video stored? Is it always stored? If somebody puts in a complaint, can we be certain that the data will be stored so that either we can dismiss the complaint if it's untrue or the person will be done if it is true? Um, how do we store that? Uh, you know, there's technological problems, but actually I don't see the technological problems being as big as some of the other questions. We didn't really talk at all about using some of this
for evidence. Currently we rely on police officers to write down descriptions of what they saw. And we know that memory is utterly fallible. Utterly, utterly fallible. I did a uh, training course with the Met Police, their decision support module for firearms officers. We had a massive screen, and I and a partner were there with laser guns as it happens, watching the scene play out, trying to work out where, if at all, should we pull our guns and, and shoot at the person. Now, I won't talk about whether I actually it was a shot. <laughs> and I remember the scene vividly. And after we, we did the scene, uh, as it played out, it was somebody with a very serious mental health problem who was suicidal and ended up shooting both of us before we decided to actually fire. That's probably not a good act. <laughs> but what was interesting was that my partner and I were asked what had happened. And she gave a very clear description of what had happened, what we'd seen on the video, and it was utterly wrong. The descriptions that she gave were just not true. There was no reason for her to be lying. I mean, why, why would she? It was a film. But memories were awful. So the use of evidence is really interesting. But it does have other questions. What we already are a country which is under huge state surveillance. Uh, just this morning, by the way, I'm delighted to say uh, there's a case from the Investigatory Powers Tribunal I was involved in that said that our agencies have been breaking the law for about the last 10 years. Uh, we have that. We already have more CCTV than anywhere else. There's a big difference between having something which records officers' interactions and where mutually protecting officer and the public and using that as a massive information gathering source. Mm. It's not that hard to do facial recognition. If I had a camera here, the technology easily exists to be able to keep track of all of you, look at your faces, probably find most of your Facebook profiles, your Twitter profiles, find out what you've been doing, where you live, and whose house I ought to be burgling right now, because you're here. <laughs> so how do we keep track of that? When and how will that be looked at? Um, I think there's some other positive issues that we can look at as well. So we see the behaviour change for the police. And there's also a great opportunity for police to learn on the job. Because I don't know how many of you have ever been involved in these very fast, high-stress environments. But it's quite hard to work out what you should have done differently afterwards when you don't really remember exactly what happened. And it's easy to learn the wrong lesson, or not notice that you do things in a certain way. I, I used to be an ambulance technician with St. John Ambulance. And it's a real frustration. I could never get any of my colleagues on me what I should have done. So what happened? And the things I didn't notice are things I didn't notice. So how do I learn that I should have looked at? You don't, you don't really know. I never had a patient die on me, so I feel it was too disastrous. Um, there's a real challenge. And I think it's right that some of the officers in these experiments have been using them for reflection and for learning. There's some real opportunities there to actually bring back better policing. I've spoken for longer than I meant to. There's a few other things that we can pick up perhaps later. But I think this is really exciting. So firstly, just the fact that we're doing evidence-based policymaking. We're making decisions based on the evidence. That we can get policing which is hopefully better for the honest, good police officers trying to do the right thing and not abusing this power we give them. So we should see a reduction in police, inappropriate police violence. And we should see more complaints being successful where they're real. So we should see better police. It should be really good for policing by consent. And hopefully, it will mean that we'll start seeing people being dissuaded from criminal activities correctly. That good policing and savings as well. Hopefully, it will be quite a transformative program. I'm quite excited to see how it rolls out in Lewisham and elsewhere. But we do just need to think about where it's heading over the long term. I hope that's given some thoughts, but I'd love to hear what you have to say rather than me going on for much longer. Thanks a lot. Julian, would you mind um, yeah. saying the chair? Okay, so, well, don't even mind. 
Can you hear us at the back? Okay, so questions. If you have questions, please put your hand up. Gentleman there with the leather coat on and the beard. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, can you tell me a little bit more about um, the way you think about the plane production, which is very striking, which you gave me the story that was something like, oh, what's happening is, I've got a camera, so I'm behaving better, and they're behaving better, and that's why it's this place. But there's, of course, you know, another hypothesis, which is, that I'm being reported as a member of the public means that I'm less likely to make a complaint mm. for whatever sort of reason. Mm. Have you done any work to sort of control that other hypothesis? Because that would be really problematic, right? If it turned out that there were less complaints being made just because they were being reported, which I can imagine reasons why that could happen. Have you done any work to sort of test for that? Sure, I'll give it a shot. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, at the end of the day, we ha all we have is the number of complaints that we reduce, and I don't have the breakdown to tell you for what, whether the frivolous complaints went down or otherwise. We can suspect that since we have such a massive reduction in complaints, some of them went down to zero, that it may lean towards the first hypothesis that actually the, the interaction changed. Um, when people are grieved and they want to make, perhaps, when, when people are grieved and they want to complain, maybe having the camera around actually would help them in their case because they think that the officer misbehaved. Um, and, and then there's evidence to support that story. Unless, unless, unless of course, the other hypothesis would be stronger, but we don't have a, a, a evidence to support that. But I think this, to some extent, is precisely why I'd be interested in the figures about whether the complaints were successful. Mm. You know, what, what is the change that we're seeing there? Um, it's hard to separate out all of these things. What you want is that there weren't the behaviours, particularly from the police officers, um, that would cause complaints. And certainly we know that there, there because I dealt with one a number of years ago where there was a, an argument about whether somebody had been t detained inappropriately or not. And the officers said, well, it was only a couple of minutes conversation. He said, no, it was more like an hour. Mm. And it turned out it was just caught on the edge of a CCTV camera. I mean, CCTV is not very useful in most of these cases, but occasionally. And it turned out that um, CCTV revealed that the discussion lasted for about 50 minutes. Mm. So the officers who clearly remembered it as being only a passing interaction, that seemed less plausible. Um, so hopefully you don't see those inappropriate behaviours because people know, the police know. But it's hard to be sure. Questions, okay. Um, gentleman right at the front down here. I'm going to make the roving mic guy work, earn his, earn his <laughs> keep. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this question relates to the issue of discretion that um, Julian raised at the end. And specifically, I was wondering is turning the cameras on and off the only form of control that police officers have over how the cameras are used and the evidence that they uh, get from them? I was wondering whether uh, the police that are using them have developed a particular strategy so that they're used in the police's favour rather than mm -hmm. the other way around. And, and one, one uh, reason why I ask this is that I've seen and heard that um, in the United States, uh, at points at which um, cars are stopped, that policemen have been putting up the bonnets of their cars in order to obscure <laughs> the cameras, yeah. gathering evidence of them brutalizing experience and doing other such things. Well, uh, <laughs> you want to? No, that's fine. Uh, look, uh, <laughs> well, you know. Uh, I, 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 
I mean, you don't want to answer the question. Okay, fine. I'll ask you to say something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get that. Let me tell you the, the protocol. The protocol dictates that the cameras are supposed to be used uh, in these interactions, and you have to turn on the camera when you engage with somebody. Once it's pressed record, and there's evidence in that, the officer cannot do anything with it because once you dock the camera in the docking station, the officer cannot tamper with the evidence because they, they, don't, they simply don't have the technology, sorry, the, 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 the ability to actually make changes in the video. But up until that point of pressing the button, then the officer could do whatever he wants or she wants. And at the end of the day, if the officer wants to misbehave, look, I'll give you another example. In the project that we're running in a particular country, a month into the project, all cameras broke. <laughs> my, question. my question is about, you're suggesting it's binary, on and off. I'm, I'm asking whether there's more going on. No, it's binary. You either press it on. It's either on or it's off. But I think the point about when they turn it on, I mean, there is some question that you know, officers, if they want to go to the loo during their shift, they need to have a bit of privacy. So the camera, you know, reasonably could be turned off for, that, for the loo break, I hope. Um, but the point we're making here, the policy would be that if you're responding to any call for service, you know, some of them will come over the radio, please respond to this location. Before you're getting there, wherever it is, the camera is on. You're in the car or you're walking and the camera's on. If you're driving by and you see two people having a fight, before you get out of the car and stop to, to get involved, the camera is on. And you're giving a description about what, where you are and what's going on. So we think that the, the, very, the very heart of it, that kind of policy, reduces the opportunity for this to happen. But obviously, people can still do it. Now, there are calls in the US for... Um, officers to be prosecuted or kind of disciplined if they don't have their cameras on when they're supposed to. Um, it's not really clear what effect that would have, other than perhaps lots of cameras getting mysteriously broken. Um, but it's, it's, it's that kind of decision where, you know, police want to have the discretion to do things, but uh, and it's just a case of how you fit this idea, this policy idea, within the constraints of their job. And that, does that help, is that kind of what, you, what you're getting? Because um, I think that there are cases where you might imagine an officer needs to turn something off, you know, that they're talking to an informant or something, you know, where you possibly don't want to record all of that. Um, but you need to make it very clear mm. that they are putting themselves at massive risk mm. that, of, of complaints. That, you know, if you have an officer who routinely accidentally puts the bonnet up and blocks the camera just before an incident happens, you know, it doesn't take a genius to work out there's something odd going on there. You know, and, you know, similarly, this person who, you know, oh, I'm sorry, the camera stops just before I tasered the person. You know, it just looks really suspicious. Really, really suspicious. There's a question related to that as to whether you have a sufficiently strong police complaints process. If you have a good one, people won't get away with that. Or at least not more than, you know, accidentally once. Um, if you don't have a good police complaints process, then you do have a problem regardless. Other questions? A uh, lady at the back there, on one hand side. Um, they're introducing these into the prison service. I'm wondering if there's any research that's going forward into that because it's a slightly different population where they've already been convicted hmm. and do they have um, less to lose while they've been recorded doing things because what's an extra 10 days to a 15 year sentence compared to 10 years to your freedom? Hmm. I was in touch with the uh, NOMS, the National Offender Management Service, about this piece of work, trying to get them to do something rigorous as an evaluation. I don't know what's happened to that. Um, but we think that um, I mean, that kind of environment is already under a lot. There's already cameras everywhere on the wings and everything else. But 
people find ways around those kinds of things. And the question might be, is again, what kind of, what kind of policy would be necessary in a prison environment? And it may be that in that environment, the cameras should be on all the time, and maybe they'll, they'll do something. But it's about changing the nature of the interaction. And it speaks to other research on the quality of officer and, and prisoner interactions. And again, it, this may be a tool that helps with that, but there's a lot of other things going on. And this, you know, the, the cameras can't do all of that. So maybe there is a role for them there, but we think that if it's going to be, you know, looked at or piloted, it should also be evaluated, I says with my evaluator's hat on. Mm. I mean, the, the, the bigger thing there is, you know, there is quite clear evidence on uh, the effect of locking people up on crime. And we know that actually we lock far more people up than is sensible, uh, particularly some of the short sentences which increase reoffending later. So, you know, we've got lots of evidence we could actually make use of already. Mm. Another question. That gentleman just next to you with a... I have two questions, one for myself and one genuinely for a friend who's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've tweeted about this. So my question, perhaps I won't say which is mine, which is the friend's. <laughs> um, a question, my question about um, how the forces that have done less well in implemented, implementing this shown any, any evidence of learning that it's the combination of camera and voice that's key here, and so that they've done something better to train those officers who already have the camera. Also a question about um, the uh, storage uh, and access, whether you, in, in your research, have established any um, learning from that about good and poor practice. You can show yeah. the Rialto slide if you want the downloads. Oh, you have that? Yeah, great. So, why are you setting up the slide? I'll start with the second question, if I may. Uh, one of the things that we learn, and actually there's evidence to support this kind of learning, is that using the cloud-based serv uh, servers to, to store the information is far superior than uh, other alternatives, such as storing this in an intranet or on a standalone computer, because at the end of the day, the, the use of the camera is just, it's yesterday's question. The question, the real question now that we're asking ourselves is how do you use the evidence? It has real cost implications. Some police departments in the United States are actually freezing their project because it's really costing them a lot of money. So the question is how do you actually store this information and how do you use it? Uh, we've, we found that using a cloud-based system is actually, actually cheaper because once they have to employ all these servers in-house, it costs a lot of money. And of course, the way that you want to share the data Instead of sending it on CDs, as some forces still do, you can send it on a link. In other words, just a link to the whatever server you're having, and then you can share this information with the courts, with the other side, in other words, the defense attorney, and so on. So the capabilities are much wider. And of course, one day when we really want to use a, 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 a system that would be shared with all forces in the country, and using apps like uh, facial recognition, you want to have the same kind of system, and it seems to be going to the cloud. And of course, if it's good for everybody else, it probably is also good for the police. Now, what, please go ahead. Please. This, this shows the, um, the downloads of the Rialto, in the Rialto study, um, officers essentially downloading videos from their, their shifts and how many, how many times this happened. Um, and it shows that officers are using the, the, the videos as a, as a learning tool in some way. Um, 
there are obviously other things they could be doing with it, i.e. getting their story straight when it comes to some disagreement. Um, but we think there is a potential here for the for cameras and certainly the, the videos of, of interactions to be used for training. And there are there were have been some moves in terms of say stop and search powers, where where actual footage from stops and searches could be used to help officers, new recruits, for example. Um, uh, kind of conduct themselves better. And the wider question about training is also important because it, it, it plays into this. You know, is it is it easier to just hire everyone and give them some basic training and then give them more cameras to help, help them behave, or is it better to actually have a training process that puts the officers on the streets that they wouldn't really need cameras? They actually know how to conduct themselves without causing you know other things to go on. Um, but again, it, there's no kind of hard and fast rule for the, the best way of doing it. And I think a lot of what we're we're trying to pick up here is just one piece of the puzzle and say, what do we know about that? So there's another, I think that's a good question. Any, any other questions, sorry? Um, that's a question for his friend. Yeah. Was it your special questions, yours and your friend's question? You are? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, gentlemen, there in the back. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that due to that nice chap in the blue shirt there who's taken photographs of us, I haven't picked my nose once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I can intuit how it does affect behaviour. Um, I wanted to ask what uh, further work we're doing or, or thinking of doing or have done um, to analyse what's going on in the ones that were to the right of some of the curves you showed later on where there clearly wasn't a difference or there was an adverse effect. Because of the other things like resourcing, training, where we talked about um, organisational culture and so on, have you looked at other variables rather than focusing just on the use of the camera that would explain some of the marked differences that there were between the different sites? Right, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, from what we've seen so far, and that's just one answer, because it can obviously slice and dice um, the data in different ways, but one way that you can slice and dice the data and show interesting patterns is that there's a stark difference between American forces and UK forces. It's very tough to get the US forces on board. The police departments in the United States, uh, you know, anecdotally, every time I travel into the United States and I have to, to declare why I'm there, I tell them I'm the body one video researcher, they'll go, you know, <laughs> they don't like that. Um, and it's very challenging to change that perception because the, the way that it's perceived here is quite different than what it is perceived there. And we have some surveys with officers, low response rates, but never mind, where officers are telling us what they think about this. You see resistance. Whereas here, you just get on with it. You know, okay, well, actually, we see the benefits. It might be a, 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 a time issue that here, more forces have actually implemented this on a wider scale than you see in the United States. But you see differences between the different departments. And also, and lastly, if I may, there's also a learning curve. Um, in all forces that implemented the cameras, Overall, at the end of the project, towards the end of the project, they're, they're, they're on board. They get it, they want to use it. Some of them are saying, I'd rather take this than my gun. They're, they're on board. But if you look, at, that's the average. If you look at the beginning of the trial, we couldn't get them to get the cameras on because they simply didn't want to do it. They didn't see the benefits. It's like, oh, another thing, they're trying to get us again. But after a while, they realize this is not what it's about. The line manager goes back to your question. The line manager cannot see the footage because we want to protect privacy. We'll talk trash about our bosses all the time, right? <laughs> so, we don't want, so we don't want him or her to have that evidence. So getting some safeguards in the process and then learning that this is actually the case changed their way. So on average, you see reductions generally, but it took time to get I mean, I, I can see why people find it quite threatening to have all of your actions constantly monitored. I'm not sure I'd like that to happen when I work. 
Um, but it is interesting there's a difference in the US and UK. I mean, you say it might be time. It may also just be there's a different attitude to policing by consent. And that there already is the assumption in the UK, far more, you know, it's not perfect, of course, that police do try to work with the community rather than against the community. You know, massively far from perfect. But just by comparison with the US, we are in a much easier place, you know, which is great. As, a, as, a, as an example, so often when you kind of get these things published or writing about them, you never read the comments, or you try not to, because sometimes they can be well, a little bit strange. Um, but there are often calls to this group or that group should have cameras. One of them was MP, actually. Um, <laughs> um, so I chuck that in there. Um, but there, there are actually discussions about other kinds of groups that might say so paramedics wearing cameras. You know, that's, I think that's something that's being talked about at the moment. Makes sense, potentially. Um, the punting people in Cambridge wearing cameras. Okay, if you want, but. It's a bit to do with touting or something. I, 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 think, it, I think it's, it's council enforcement. Ah, there we go. Not okay. the punting. And say, I was like, But traffic wardens, you know, uh, or, or PCSOs, again, like different different functions, different roles. Maybe wearing traffic wardens, again, maybe it makes sense, given how unpleasant their job probably is sometimes. Maybe it makes sense to have that working, but who knows? Who knows whether it would be beneficial or not? Again, it's, there, is, there are always these calls, and I think whenever there is a call at this, I'm just like, well, well evaluate it, <laughs> please. But, but I think it's also about the exceptionality of the yeah. powers. You know, yeah. At what stage are you saying, you know, we want to monitor everybody yeah. because you know, any of us could do something? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we had everybody carried a body worn camera, which had to be on at all times in every room. That's why it's my problem. <laughs> <right? laughs> you know, but if you had that and every single room had a camera to monitor everything, you know, I think we'd all hate that. Mm. So I think for me, it's about that exceptionality. Mm. You know, it's about what powers are you using, why, and how careful do we need to be about that? Mm. So firearms is, is one extreme case. Mm. Um, you know, other things may be much better. PCSOs, yeah. <laughs> Community policing is probably not a good place to have it's it. It's a question. Two ladies in the front, in the white. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lady in the white just here, lady with the red glasses on. And then one over there, and I think we're probably done there, aren't we? Are we? Yeah, okay. There's one right to the back. Okay. Um, my question is, is about um, the public also have access to, to firearms and videos about a piece of technology that now the police are adopting after years that everybody else is reporting the police. They're the last ones to go on board and actually report themselves. Everybody's got a camera on, as you said before. Now, going back to and trying to reply to, to respond to that as well, I think that the genie is out of the um, bag? No. The genie is out of the bottle in terms of cameras. Uh, everybody's got cameras these days. The moment or the day that everything will be filmed constantly is just around the corner. Uh, you're talking about paramedics. I can tell that schools are now introducing mm -hmm. body-worn videos to the teacher, to the headmasters. You can like it or not, that's where we're going. The question is, is that going to make us a society that's better or not? I don't have any evidence to support that. That's not, that's a different department. But at the end of the day, everybody will have a camera. Uh, and if it's the case, then it's not about the device. It's about how we use it and how we ultimately then explore the evidence to, to calm down the situation and then bring people to justice, both sides, of course, then so be it. So everybody, we should use it, of course. And if it's the case that we do, and the evidence that we have presented is 
logical and we can believe it, then in fact we do find some sort of a turning point on the way that the police police by consent and otherwise. It, I also want to flag out that policing in the UK is pretty good. <laughs> if, if you look at other places around the world, we mentioned Brazil before, I mean, we got to put this in the right context. Policing in the United Kingdom is doing very well compared to other places. If you look at Brazil and other examples, of course, it's just a, it's different worlds altogether. There's always room for improvement. Mm -hmm. I, I'll be the first to say that. But it's more challenging to improve something that's already pretty good. Mm -hmm. I mean, some places here you would have 60, 70, 80% um, support for the police. How can you top that? Mm -hmm. So we are talking about a very minuscule number of cases that we're trying to improve. Okay, another question here. Lady in red glasses, and then we have. One more than one. Firstly, I just want to say thank you so much for doing this research. Uh, at least in the US, it's definitely very needed. Um, my question might be like, perhaps like maybe too specific, but uh, I was looking at the site age in the reduction of complaints, and it was a 44% reduction as compared to like 88, 90, 100 um, in the complaints. So I was just wondering if there was this factor specific to age that made like the reduction of complaints lower than, than the rest of the sites. Do you remember what age was? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I do, but I'm not allowed to disclose yeah, no, it. Yeah. We had a, a, some sort of a formal agreement with the forces that we will not disclose the one. Before we ran the experiments, we said we're not going to disclose any particular force just because of that question. We know what H is, but we'll keep it to ourselves. <laughs> I mean, it would be an interesting idea that somewhere which was already reducing inappropriate behavior, mm. you'd expect to see a much smaller effect mm. because you wouldn't have inappropriate use of force, yeah. for example. And, you know, so a police force which had already eliminated that through training, through other things, this can't reduce it much more. Jimmy, there are two more questions. The gentleman's been very patient. I think just there, and there was another question at the right back of the black. Yeah. We'll, take, we'll take both questions, and we'll try and respond quickly, and then we can all go and get a drink. <laughs> I'll try and be brief. Uh, I've been a bit some skepticism from personal experience, but the question I want to ask, I guess, primarily to Julian, is one of regulation and control. If this technology is the police's technology and they can do what they choose to do with it, then I fear that they will find ways to get around it when it's inconvenient. Uh, why not require the police forces to use it and have an external regulation to ensure that it, it is being what it's intended to be so senior officers are actually getting more out of their I mean, that, that's where I would push for. I mean, that's why, you know, I, my involvement with this started off by calling for all firearms officers and taser officers to have, to have this, not as an optional thing, but as a requirement. It's part of the role so that we can check what's going on. Um, and you're right, that if it becomes something which officers, particularly individual officers, have too much control over, then there will be cases of, I'm sorry, all of that got lost. It's such a great shame that, you know how awful. Um, but that's why it's really important, you know, and I think there's agreement, but it's, it seems quite clear that having a system where it is always on, and it is a problem if it isn't on, you know, is the right way to do it. The automatic backup is really good. It's stored for, I think, in, the, in London they're going for a month. Yeah. Um, and so if you wish to make a complaint, you have a month. We need to make sure that there aren't cases of, I put the complaint in, it took, you know, five weeks to process the complaint, and then we're really sorry, we've lost it already. But that, and that does have to be externally controlled. If the police will do that properly, great. We need to check that it's done, you know, and, and that it doesn't get lost. It's one side attention in the retention, actual retention policy is that you, the, the, the forces have a 28-day retention policy for these things um, before they're deleted. 
and you have a year to submit a complaint, yeah. I think. So there's a mismatch between yeah. how long the data is being stored for and how long you have a, as a citizen to actually make the complaint. Yeah. There's one more question at the back, and then with the gentleman in the black T-shirt. Good evening. My question is around the technology and uh, the research with the different police forces. Did you actually um, look at the technology that they were using for ease of use and that sort of thing? Maybe that wasn't had an effect on mm. Sure. Um, yeah, there, so we, we had the privilege of using different um, different cameras. Uh, so we had different companies giving these cameras for uh, for the experiment to see whether they're working or not. And certainly, the type of camera varies, and the use the ease of use, as you call it, varies as well. For example, if you have some of the cam some of the cameras with the front-facing screen, that's super sexy. It makes a lot of sense. You see yourself and all that. The real challenge is that the battery will just die out after a couple of years, a couple of um, uh, hours. So at the beginning, is your mobile phone worked really well, uh, but six months later, because you use it all the time and you keep on recording and use a video, the battery it will strain your battery. So if you have an eight-hour shift and two-hour battery, mm -hmm. you start to, you have to start making choices. Mm -hmm. What am I going to record? Mm -hmm. And that defeats the whole purpose. Mm -hmm. So some of the better cameras out there are very simple, they're very robust, the battery life will last for a long time. By the way, you don't want to have a 1080 camera, because mm -hmm. if you present this in court, the judge will see something that you, you thought that was there and actually wasn't because you have that tunnel vision. The eye, the human eye is not 1080, it's actually 480, 470, probably somebody can correct me. It's much lower resolution, so the, the technology really makes a difference mm -hmm. and it changes from company to company. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna let everyone go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming.